Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. How'd you go bankrupt? Two ways. Gradually, then suddenly. That's Hemingway, Tap Lines listener. The sun also rises, if my aging English major memory serves correctly. I suspect old Ernest may have gotten a kick out of the episode you're about to hear. In the early 60s, a fancy fellow named Bob Eline, that's U-I-H-L-E-I-N, for fans of German spelling who are keeping score at home, took the reins on what was then a brewery second only to the mighty Anheuser-Busch in the American beer business pantheon the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Schlitz, a longtime holding of the same industrial dynasty behind the Uline packaging firm, was known nationwide as the beer that made Milwaukee famous. It was an absolute heavyweight for its day, and Bob Uline was the Uline tapped to run it. Thanks to his ham-fisted leadership, his family's appetite for passive income, and the industry-disrupting impact of a resurgent Miller Brewing Company, plus some truly inopportune macroeconomic headwinds through the 70s, both Schlitz's liquid and its liquidity would be an irrecoverable disarray in less than two decades. How? Two ways, listener. Gradually, then suddenly. Joining the show for her third Taplines appearance is the brilliant historian and writer Maureen Ogle, author of the vital industry history Ambitious Brew, to talk about how exactly Eline & Co. managed to erase a century's worth of Schlitz's industry-leading, Milwaukee-born brewing legacy in the 60s and 70s. Our previous outings with the inimitable Ogle cover the beginning and end of the light beer wars, and I highly recommend you go back and check those out in the Taplines feed because they're absolutely germane to today's conversation. But on this episode, we're talking Schlitz which means we're talking recipe fiddling, talking SEC rules violating, we're talking disastrous commercial commissioning. I mean, the works. If there was a blueprint for how to run a storied American brewery into the ground, it would look a whole lot like the timeline of Schlitz's demise. Get ready for a mess, listener. It's historian Maureen Ogle, it's the beer that made Milwaukee famous, It's how the E-Line schlitz the bed, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Maureen, 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 I'm begging you, please don't take my schlitz. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Hopefully no one has just bailed on us already. Maureen, welcome back to Tap Lines. Thanks for having me. I don't think you should quit this particular day job. I understand. I'm sorry to subject you to that, but I wanted to set the tone and set it early because we are going to be talking Schlitz. We're going to be talking Gusto. We're going to be talking the great downfall uh, of a once mighty American brewing uh, legacy, an institution. I'm talking, of course, about the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, which came to ruin uh, in the last quarter of the 20th century. We're going to get into it, but Maureen, 
We're so glad to have you back for what is now your third appearance here on on Vine Pairs Tap Lines podcast. Uh, I said before, you know, I'm going to get on this right after we're done recording. I mean, I've got to manufacture some challenge coins or something. We got to we got to commemorate this moment. Um, But thank you for being here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Where are you joining us from? Uh, what's called the nap room in our house in Ames, <laughs> Iowa. Okay, well, we're going to try not to put our listeners to sleep. <laughs> no. Uh, and you are, of course, as always, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, your game to talk schlitz. Where should yeah. we set the tap lines time machine? Uh, what year should we set it to? Where should we scroll back to? I'm thinking maybe 1972, 19. 19- 73-ish, and pick up the story there. How's that sound to you? You want to go earlier? No. Later? No, no, no earlier. No, Let's jump no, right no. in. The, the, the seeds were planted in the early 1960s. You got to okay. start there. Scrub okay. us back to, yeah, 1960s. Right. Let's go. Okay. Are we talking so, Democratic Convention in Chicago, 1968? What are we, when no, are we talking here? No. Yeah. 19, <laughs> we're, st- we're talking 1962 is okay. when things began to go bad. Okay, so we're, take us in. Okay, well, first of all, for you young'uns who don't know who Schlitz is, because there's no reason. Yes, for the whippersnappers, uh, Schlitz Brewing was founded in Milwaukee in the 1850s. Mm. So it had been around for a very long time. It was constantly neck and neck with Anheuser-Busch, basically from about 1880 on. They were constantly at each other. And after Prohibition ended, they quickly emerged, the two of them emerged as the two largest brewers in the United States. Mm. And in the 1950s, which was a very bad time for every beer maker because beer sales were just flat as the proverbial pancake, um, Schlitz and Pabst Sorry, Schlitz and Anheuser-Busch kept going back and forth, back and forth on who was selling the most. But in 1955 or 1957, depending on how you count, Anheuser-Busch pulled away and never <laughs> and never stopped pulling yeah. away. Anheuser-Busch yeah. has been the biggest brewery in the country since then. So uh, th- the reason to start in the 1960s is that in the 1950s, Schlitz, uh, someone who worked there said it was like a bunch of fat lions dozing in the sun. Nothing mm. happened. The guy running the company was in his 90s. He had been with the company for 70 years. Wow. Enter Bob Eline. Yes, the, the family that owned the company, and they owned approximately 80% of the company's shares, is the Eline family, U-I-H-L-E-I-N. Uh, they were the direct descendants of the person who actually founded the brewery, not Joseph Schlitz, but the other one, another person, the Krug, <laughs> yeah, Anton. Uh, what was it anyway? Krug, yes, Krug. Krug. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, Bob Eline is the guy we're going to be hearing a lot about here. Bob Eline joined the company. He knew he'd never do anything, but if you were an Eline son, the expectation all the way through was you were going to join the company. So Bob Eline was, he joined the company and if I remember right, like 1935 or 1936. And like mm. all Elines, he started at the bottom, way at the bottom, and started working his way up. And he was essentially stuck under Saul Abrams, the 90-something guy who'd been there for 70 years. And he was getting, as you might imagine, Bob Eline was like, 
you know, how long am I going to be sitting here treading water in a, a vice restless. presidential position? Yeah, a little yeah. restless, yes. <laughs> so in, 19, in approximately 19, between 1960 and 1962, finally he persuaded his fellow Elines who really were calling the shots. If something was going to get done, the board, which was overwhelmingly dominated by Elines, pretty much had to approve everything. But finally, they elevated Bob Eline to the position of president. So here it's 1962. Bob Eline finally is in charge of the whole banana. Mm -hmm. And man, did he proceed to screw things up. <laughs> in, the, in the 1960s, what he, 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 he started out smart. He realized that everything at Schlitz Brewing in Milwaukee was essentially still in the 19th century. So mm -hmm. he just kind of stripped all the management. He started over. He hired a whiz-bang marketing genius from named Fred Haviland. Oh, that's right. From yeah. yeah. Anheuser-Busch and brought him in. And the two of them bought a bunch of computers from IBM. Remember, this is 1960 and we're talking punch cards. That's cutting-edge technology. Began Yes, it was at very cutting edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. At that time, it was extremely cutting edge. Like nobody else was doing this. And they started uh, doing a whole bunch of customer surveys, feeding in their data to see what the punch cards would return and so on and so forth. Because he's trying to figure out how can we make more money? He's an E-line. The, the 468 E-lines who hold the shares, man, they want returns on their dividends. Mm. And they're not very happy because they snooze through the 50s. So Bobby Line sets out to just remake the entire company. And you have to do a lot of reading between the lines when you're reading the journalism covering people like this. But it's clear that Eline wasn't nuts about making decisions. Mm. And despite spending a year in brewing school, which was a rule, if you're an E-line and you're going to work in the company, you got to spend a year at a brewing school. So he did. He had no interest in the beer, didn't care what happened in the brew house, mm -hmm. and never seemed to grasp the connection between what the marketing guys might decide to do and what the bean cutters might decide to do and how that's going to work out in the actual brew house. Mm. Like He took into account everything except the brew house. So the first thing he did was significantly alter the recipe for probably the first time in, you know, a hundred years or something, as far as we know. And he altered it in order to make it cheaper to produce, a lot cheaper. He reduced the amount of hops, um, reduced the amount of barley, mm -hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. So they're doing okay. And he also launches a plan to build super plants, is what they were called. Bobby Line's ideal brewing plant in the 1960s was unlike anything anybody had seen before. These massive plants, mm. very automated, highly automated, extremely efficient. And the idea is that between the super plants and the dumbed down beer and their whiz-bang computer-based marketing, they're going to kill the market. And it actually worked. Sales started to go up, 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 up. And by 1970, 71 things things are on paper things are going well yeah but the elines want more and bob eline starts making a bunch of really strategically stupid decisions one of them is he decides to diversify into a bunch of incredibly stupid things which 
he didn't have really any oversight on. He he kind of laid the, you know, here to one of his flunkies here, go find some diversification, right? Like what? What is but, what are they buying into? Oh, they they bought a duck farm, they bought a vinegar <laughs> factory, they bought a livestock feed company, uh, yeah, a glass yeah. plant, um Okay, some adjacent A glass there, maybe. plant in Turkey for God's okay, sake. Okay, never mind. You know, <laughs> you, yeah, you know what I mean? It was all um yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. was all kind of farmed out. Bobby line was was no August Bush III who, you know, knew what was going on everywhere at any moment of the day. Yeah. Well, can we so, talk about that for a second? Because sh- at, sure. at this time, you say, you know, there's kind of, we're in this period, this post-prohibition, post-World War II period of, uh, you know, sort of titanic struggle between Anheuser-Busch and Schlitz. These are mm-hmm. the players on the field. Miller Brewing Company would come on strong Later in the 70s yes. when it introduces Miller Lite and it sort of finds its footing with all that Philip Morris cash. And, and listener, if you haven't yet, please go listen to a previous episode with Maureen on the Light Beer Wars. There's two of them. You'll find them in the <laughs> yeah. feed. They're fantastic. And we discuss that chapter at length. But Anheuser-Busch at this time, if I'm not mistaken, was also doing some diversification of its own. So Bob Eline's idea to diversify Schlitz maybe wasn't the worst idea or at least comported with his competitors vision for the landscape. He just made some bad decisions. It sounds like that's right. That's right. Anheuser-Busch. Remember the 1950s were awful. And in the 1960s, Anheuser-Busch also genuinely, you know, stepped up its game, even though it was already number one and Mm -hmm. it did diversify, but it did things like Bush gardens. Yep. You know, um, and some other e- eagle kinds snacks. Of, if I'm not mistaken, e- yes, they had a eagle salty snacks. Snack yes, yep, yep, yes. Yep. They, yeah. I remember getting those on airplanes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, and they had the little eagle on them. Yes, exactly. Sure. So their um, their diversifications made far more sense than a vinegar plant and a duck farm. A vinegar you, plant you know just I mean? sounds like a punchline to a joke about how someone goes broke. You know, like, yes. like well, well that, I put all my money in the vinegar plan. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. And as one journalist, one analyst said at the time, um, when they start out talking to um, the big wine companies, and I draw on a blank on any, the name of any big wine company. I think company, Nicholas was it, one of the big ones back then, or that was a big dis- um, wine distributor. Gallo. Maybe. Gallo, uh, of course. Krug, yep, yes, yep, yep, yep. yes. And when you start out talking to them, for acquisitions, and what you end up with is a duck farm and a vinegar factory. <laughs> clearly, clearly, something has gone wrong. Yeah, you've been and fleeced. Yeah, yeah, or downed, or something. One or the other. I don't know. I right. don't know. Something, right. something like that. Right. right. So, so the company goes into the 1970s, this pivotal decade, with an urge to streamline the crap out of everything mm. and diversify. And somehow beat Anheuser Busch in the beer game. In 1972, the company introduced something it had been working on for 10 years. It was called accelerated batch fermentation. Mm. And I don't know all the technical details, but in effect, they attached a stirring mechanism to the fermentation tank mm-hmm. and allowed air in. And it allowed them to, the fermentation period had been 12 days. This cut it down to two days. Mm, wow! Right, so they're they're saving quite a lot of money by yep. doing this. Their competitors get wind of it and spread the word that Schlitz is making green beer, and 
that did not help. In fact, it hurt. Their sales started to go down a bit. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, sales are going down a bit. Because of this new innovative process that in sort of conversely uh, puts word out into the marketplace that maybe this beer is not up to quality standards. I mean, how much of that, do do you get a sense for whether sales were being impacted because drinkers had started rejecting it at this point or more just there was chatter and this was such a small industry and everyone knew one another that wholesalers were getting worried like had had cost in other words had drinkers started rejecting the product yet not quite yet Mm. they had not quite yet um the other problem there are two other problems right after they do this this is a thing to understand what why things went haywire. There are a lot of uh, wrenches in the works. And one one of them was right around the time they did this, one reason their sales started to drop is that Philip Morris was dumping bajillions of dollars into mm. Miller, which mm. we talked about in those two previous episodes. This is what podcast. kicks off the light beer wars. That's right. Yeah. That, they haven't even gotten to the light beer. They're just dumping bajillions of dollars in. They're cutting, you know, they're doing cost promotion. You know yep. what I mean? They're doing yep. everything they can. And it's it's hurting Schlitz more than it's hurting anybody else. Interesting. So the entry of of Miller right then at the same time becomes a complicating factor. Another factor is the president of the company who was brought in to kind of salvage things because Bob Eline had moved on. I think he was CEO and chair, or maybe he was just chair. Anyway, they brought a guy named Ray Satchel back into the company he had worked for them before. He lasted a grand total of six weeks because the the family simply said no to everything. You know, the family, the board is absolutely calling the shots at this point. They want more, they want fatter checks and they don't like like set. Right. So he's like a hung executive at that point. Like he doesn't actually have the ability to make executive decisions. No. Because the family is just rejecting them out of hand. No, that's right. If they in any way take a bite out of the dividends or even if they don't increase the dividends enough. Yeah. That's right. And one of the things that Bob Eline had decided to do, having built a bunch of super plants in the 1960s, Mm -hmm. he embarked on a $300 million um, overhaul of plants and building more plants. And the family did not want to pay for this. So he had to take on a lot of debt. Right. So suddenly, because, you know, he can't get money from the board. So if he wants to do this, he's got to go into debt. So suddenly the company also has taken on a fair amount of debt. So things are suddenly going sort of squeaky. And in the middle of all of this, hanging over everything is the great panic at the gas pump. I was going to say, this is not a time to be taking out an enormous no. amount of debt. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. For Again, for the youngsters, I was a young woman when this happened. And I'm here to tell you, it was not a lot of fun in the mm. 1970s. Um, for a number of reasons, there was a period of just extraordinary inflation. It prices just shot up because the oil producing companies had decided to withhold oil from the planet. This is the rise of what people now know as OPEC, right? I mean, OPEC- That's right. This was OPEC. That's right. First time starts flexing their muscles in a way that affects the American like gasoline markets and it's havoc. I mean, you lived through it. Tell us just briefly. I know this is this is sort of backdrop, but like for people who don't know, what was that like, Maureen? Well, for example, I mean, it's not just gas. 
fuel prices accelerated. Across you know, the if board, your electrical yeah, sure. bill, if your electrical bill or heating bill had been, say, $10 a month, all of a sudden it's $40 or $50 a month. Whoa. In 1974, the price of barley tripled in the space Whoa. of a year. And so every brewer is facing incredibly high input costs, Increases, but also yeah, yeah. costs for paying the bills, you know, paying for the lights, paying for the fuel, paying yep. for, you know, there are some strikes, th throw in a few strikes. And Hazard-Busch got struck in 1976 by the Teamsters, a uh, hundred, hundred day strike or, or longer. But maybe, there yeah. were some others before that small, okay, yes, yeah, there yeah. was that big one, but that was a little later. So this is the circumstance in which the company decides to attack the beer itself again to try to make it cheaper to make and takes on a ton of debt. And for all intents and purposes, the company has no vi has no president. There's no manager. Bobby Lyons there, sort of, but mostly he's right. going on vacations and playing polo. Right. He he's big polo guy. <laughs> he went to Harvard, you know, right? He's a he's a he, posh, uh, yeah, that's right. polished uh, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I well, I should have mentioned we all know the Bushes had a lot of money, but the E lines make them look like poor people. Mm. The E lines were loaded. <laughs> It seriously loaded. And those 468 people, including Bobby Line, he doesn't want to give up his fat checks, right? right. Besides the check right. he's getting from the company. So, so everything continues. And this is the year, here's where I need to, that in 1974, Schlitz's sales peaked at 17.9 million barrels. And after that, everything starts to fall off. Wow. Uh, the green beer didn't help. In 1975, here is, I mean, I think this is possibly the best example of someone just making one dumb decision after another. <laughs> Schlitz only had one brand on the mainland. Schlitz, okay. right? That's the brand. In Hawaii, a big part of their portfolio is Primo, P-R-I-M-O a beer made and sold in Hawaii. It's the Hawaiian beer. It's like the Hawaiian national beer. Sure. Bobby Line decides that they could reduce the cost by shutting down the brewery, making the wort in Los Angeles, dehydrating it, and then sending it back to Hawaii oh, to be- Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Right, so Primo just collapsed and they ended up selling off the brewery Wow. And it collapsed so badly that a couple of years later, Eli decides to build a brand new brewery in Hawaii so they can start making Primo there again. <laughs> when, oh, and, and pre, you know, it's just one. I'm, I mean, I got no head for business. I'm, you know what I mean? But even right. I'm like, what? What are you doing, buddy? <laughs> You well, know, I think uh, there's also like I, 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 just to pause there for a moment. I think like you've sure. you set the scene really well for all of these things that are conspiring against the company, but also the things that the company itself is doing. Right. So this is yes. it, the the call is coming from inside the house, but outside the house, it ain't looking so good either. And I, I pulled some numbers just before uh, we jumped on to record today. At its peak in the 70s, uh, inflation is at somewhere between 12 and 13 yes. percent. Borrowing, uh, uh, you know, interest rates um, are up around 20 percent at their peak yes. in the 1970s. So money isn't cheap to borrow if you're a big corporation that's trying to do mm -hmm. a bunch of expansion like we discussed the Eline vision for Schlitz is and he wants to build these super plants. But also your customers 
are having a tough time keeping up with That's bills right. because of OPEC, because of the the crisis at the pump, because of inflation being out of control, and then not any you know, other grocery bill is up three x. You know, so you're looking at a environment here where they did a lot of things wrong. There were a lot of things conspiring against them, and then the family thing is just sort of the icing on the cake. I mean, it sounds like they're anyone who's trying to make decisions at Joseph Schlitz at that time, it's got their feet in quicksand, so to speak. There's no That's way right. to move quickly and, and make a make a bold, you know, sort of, uh, even if there was someone who had vision, it's not possible to execute on it because there's 460 right. Elons who just want to keep cashing those checks. That's right. That, that, that <laughs> truly was. And it wasn't after uh, Satchel left and there mm-hmm. was... You know, they just kind of drifted for a while, and then Bobby Line went back to being president, which is to say they still really had nobody hands-on, but the right. family just resisted everything wow. that that was d- given to them, so it was hard to get anybody to come on. And it is they a publicly even, traded company at this point, but they hold almost all the shares, right? Almost all. They, yeah, yeah, gotcha. In 1970, they held about 80%. Wow. Which is a pretty nasty chunk, right? Yeah. I mean that it makes it hard to get anything done. Sure. And they vote the shares too, by the way. They're not passive investors. They're very active investors. Yes. They'll, they'll yes. show up at the meetings. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, do Oh yeah, the meetings started to get really ugly. There was one Eline in particular. This is kind of funny, I think. David Eline in the early 1960s, when Bob was going to take over as president, mm-hmm. David Eline had invested in brewery. I don't know what brewery, some, you know, whatever it was, something. Sure. Uh, and he wanted his cousin, Bob, to buy this and fold it into Schlitz. Sure, and of course. Yeah. Bob said, <laughs> you know, Bob at least had enough sense. And no, we're, we're not going to do that, you know. Yeah. And, he, you know, some he really, failing brewery in, in Illinois yeah. or wherever it was. Yeah, yeah. 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 And David Eline never let him forget that. So the meetings start to become, the board meetings become, the the shareholder meetings become very contentious because David Eline is starting to say, where's our money? He's got an extra charge here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, does he ever. And he he (laughs) grinds it rather publicly. Yes, as a matter of fact. Sure. Yes. Um, But zoom back in. So 1976, you were saying, you know, so this is, all of these things have started to compound on one another. We have external forces, we have internal mistakes. They are now starting to really interlock and create havoc for the firm. Yes. Okay. So we're in the mid seventies now. Yeah. Already analysts are saying, we don't love it. We don't love what we're seeing. We, we, (laughs) We don't love it. We don't, we don't see a future. 1976 is when everything finally fell to pieces. Mm. In, Jan- in January of 1976, HQ, the bean counters, again, I-, I cannot stress how little the brew house itself was allowed to give any input into any of this. Yeah. In January, headquarters told brewer- the brew houses to start using an ingredient called Chill Guard. Mm-hmm. It was a, that's a it was a commercial product. Um, what was it? it was like a sta- it was a stabilizer I forget. it was a sta- yeah. it was a stabilizer they had been using silica gel mm-hmm. which was quite common the reason they decided to switch to chillguard was that the food and drug administration had announced recently that they wanted to start requiring brewers 
to include all of their ingredients on a label. Mm -hmm. And silica gel would have had to be included as an ingredient. It wouldn't be filtered out. Right. And so so some someone did a little research, you know, the equivalent of googling probably and found this chill guard stuff because it would it would filter out during the process and you wouldn't know it was in there. So and the therefore FDA, they didn't have to listen. Yeah. Right. If if this happened, the FDA would be none the wiser. As it happened, I'll just you know, spoiler alert here, the FDA never did it because, boy, did the brewers push back in a serious way. Yeah, but yeah. Schlitz was afraid they were going to. So they put this chill guard in, and it had what amounted to an allergic reaction mm. to— Here, I always have to look this up. Kelkaloid. Kel yes, kelkaloid. They also used Kelkaloid, another brand name, as a foam stabilizer. Mm -hmm. A foam stabilizer and a general stabilizer, right? Well, the two interact in a nasty way. <laughs> and the beer, it shows in the beer. You can actually see it in the beer. The beer doesn't look good. It tastes okay. There's you know, imperfection. It. It's like suspended it, in the solution, basically. Yes, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. looks yeah. like there's a bunch of flaky stuff floating in it. So sure. a plant manager alerts HQ. We have a problem. We have a problem. There's something wrong with the beer, right? You know, we need to... No response. Wow. The, v, the VP who was supposed to respond to this... Just yeah, no. Shuffled the memo to the other side of his desk. Yeah. That's right. So we, can, you know, let's just forget about that. Yeah. That's how. That is how detached. Wow. Management was from the beer, and again, n not to sort of pump a b, but I got to tell you, even in his worst moments, August Bush the third would never have screwed with the beer that way. You yeah. Know, this is the whole raison d'etre of the company, and if you screw with that, there's just not going to be anything left. So. Right. Uh, what happened was, um, finally in summer, that brewmasters managed to get someone's attention. So they They're ringing the alarms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, yeah right. hard. They, they don't right. want to be putting this so, stuff out. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. That's right. So, th so the decision was made, again, in Milwaukee, in an office, that they would take out the calcaloid, just take that out altogether, and leave the chill guard. And the result was that the beer that didn't look too great before now suddenly just looks like a glass of, you know. It doesn't foam, really. It doesn't hold flaky. a head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right. It, 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 somebody said, you know, it was they'd taken out so much malt and hops that the beer just was this flat, um, flaky product. Oh. And the FDA finally called them on it. In that summer, um, they bulldozed literally bulldozed 10 million packages wow. of beer. So, you know, here's here's this company. Now, the, I, there's the one thing I forgot to mention in the as context, I should have said this earlier. Schlitz was the worst of the dishonest brewers. <laughs> they had, you know, they would bribe anybody. Yeah. The, you know, they 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 made no they had actually been under federal supervision for about four or five years at that point. They had promised we're never gonna do it again. Yeah, yeah. Of course they kept, you know. No one is <laughs> the thing is no one's no one's monitoring the underlings, right? They're just sure. out there kind of doing their thing. So after the bulldozing of this, um they were gonna the company was gonna offer offer fifty million in debentures so they could continue with their you know now crazy plan of trying to improve the company by going into debt and um, instead they they about a week later they did an abrupt 
about face, and instead they fired four of their top people in marketing. They just took out the entire, they decided to let them be the fall guys. Mm -hmm. Because at, at that, by 1976, they're under investigation from the SEC, at least two agencies in the Treasury Department, <laughs> and multiple investigations by the Justice Department. So, And, and this all is for- of this- Hang on, it, but what are the investigations for? Not so much the chill guard or anything like that. This is for no. your standard pay-to-play, sharp elbows That's in the marketplace. Right. Yeah, okay, gotcha, Ta- Tax fraud, bribes, you know, The good backs. shit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the good shit. That's right. No, this has nothing to do with it. The, the, these, the investigators, the legal eagles, don't care about the beer man. Yeah, yeah, they just right, care about right. the fact that Schlitz is breaking the law right and left right. and has sworn not to, as a federal supervisory officer, overseeing them and man, they just can't bring themselves to stop breaking the law. So, um, they love the crimes that, too much. It, They're, yeah, they love yes, the crimes. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then finally to kick off what was the shitty year of 1976 in November, Bob Eline died very unexpectedly. Okay. And he was not really replaced. They, they named a, a guy from, uh, accounting who knew nothing about you know, anything. He'd just been in accounting for a while. They named him president. And another guy was brought on as chair and his only job was to represent the family and to say no to everything. So they bring in a guy as president who faces off with the chair who represents 460 people who are going to say no. So this is a doomed enter. I mean, at that point, if the die wasn't cast, now the die is cast. Oh, no, yeah, it, yeah. no, it, no, it's all over with. Uh, 1977, <laughs> 1977, here's an interesting tidbit. The analysts at that time were saying about the beer business as a whole that it had devolved into an industry with exactly two categories, mm. premium slash super premium and light beer. Because by 1977, Light beer and Miller have simply taken over. You know, they're going gangbusters. They're going gangbusters. They got a bajillion dollars. Light beer is the Miller Light is the biggest selling beer in the country. Wow. You know, Schlitz is like (laughs) they got nothing, but they try. So in 1977, the big thing they tried was a new ad campaign. Right. The other thing they did was dump their person who their agency that had been doing all their you know, advertising for years, and mm-hmm. they went to another mm-hmm. one. And this one came up with an ad campaign that would feature um, a character like a hunter or a tennis player or a, you know, a something. Boxer. I think there was a boxer a, in there. Yeah, yeah. a boxer. Um, and the idea was that they would go into a bar and ask for a Schlitz. And people in the industry called the ad campaign, drink Schlitz or I'll kill you, because they, all of the commercials were tied around, give me my Schlitz? All yeah. right. He, you know, a guy grabs an ax and stops off the screen, and you know he's going to kill someone. And this was <laughs> supposed to be a response to the Miller Brewing ad campaign for light, which involved a whole bunch of athletes doing hilarious things like ripping, literally ripping the top third of a beer can off and saying, this is my beer and this is how I drink it. And then guzzling this, you know, Miller Lite. And then the Miller Lite, less filling tastes great. So Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. ad, those two ad campaigns are just killing the beer market. Yep. And drink Schlitz or or I'll kill you. (laughs) Nobody. The thing is, the, the people who approved it 
were in the finance department. Yeah, they didn't know anything right? about the beer drinker at that point. They didn't they know, know nothing was. about marketing. Yeah, 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 they have yeah. no marketing department. Literally, there's no marketing department. Because they fired the all those guys as Because they guys. fired. <laughs> that's right. They fired everybody. So you're right. I mean, there there is just there's just absolutely nothing. Uh, 1970. You know this this Schlitz campaign and the bad beer. Remember the year earlier. They'd made beer that, and I, but I should say, I remember that. I remember drinking the the bad Schlitz. Yes. And uh, yes, the, the, the green beer just smelled really weird, at least to me. Maybe that was just me, but the flaky beer, oh my God, you know, and it was cheap, but there was a lot of cheap beer around. No one's going to drink shitty cheap beer. So do you remember, you remember in the marketplace, people actually starting around when do you remember that happening? Drinkers actually starting to reject the liquid. It right in the middle seventies, I hung around with a bunch of people. We all drank beer and I absolutely recall, um, Schlitz was just no, Schlitz was no longer. Wow. Yeah. It was Olympia. Olympia had recently built a brewery in Wisconsin. So Olympia was selling beer in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So that, that was far cooler, right? Much cooler beer. Sure. Uh, Heineken had gone all out to get its beer. St. Pauli Girl was around. So there were all these beers. These are the imports starting to come on stronger. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And and uh, I'm telling you, if you were a 20-something, you're just not going to drink Schlitz beer. It, it really was bad beer. I've never had a Schlitz beer since then. Anyway, uh, the following year, they were indicted by a federal grand jury. <laughs> And they set they 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 settled those you know they settled those um, the funniest thing they did I I I wish I had you know something to show in October of 1978 what was left of the marketing department came up with the Schlitz Fest which was a spring break kind of well not just spring break a college campus they're going after youngsters right okay and. Um, they would hold parties for college social leaders. And, and the, the, the catch to this was not Spuds McKenzie, but Sig Linda <laughs> Stein Fuller, who was the dean of beer. So they had these very attractive women who would serve as Sig Linda Stein Fuller and have a, <laughs> a dean of beer. T- so you could get your t-shirt oh, signed by, I know. I mean, Spuds and McKenzie, you know, was so far a superstar anyway. compared to that. I mean, talk about yes, hand, hand uh, yeah. fisted. Yeah, that's yeah, the clunkiest yeah, thing I've I ever mean, heard. So, so between getting killed and having Siglinda Steinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, in in 1979, they closed their brand new Hawaiian brewery. Wow. They sold off their Syracuse plant, which had been built as the largest. Um, brewery from scratch, not yeah, added yeah. on to, but built, you know, they, they sold that off. Um, Who's buying at that point? Do you remember Stroh's maybe? I kind of think that, I think that AB bought AB. the Syracuse plant, I believe. Insult to injury um, there. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that you got to sell to your one-time rival who has since long outpaced you. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yes. I mean, there. I, I don't even think Schlitz, I think Schlitz was down to the fourth biggest. I think even Pabst was bigger and Pabst wow. was in such bad shape. It was, wow. you know, had a, you yep. know, oxygen mask on. So anyway, <laughs> uh, by this time also, and by 1980, the family share 
of the stock is down to 68%. So clearly some E-lines or somebody decided to bail. Yeah. Right? So so uh, a share, a stock share, oh yeah, I had these, um, a stock share was like $13 in 1973. No, I'm sorry. In 1973, the stock, a stock share peaked at $69 in 1980. The shares sold for $5. Whoa. Yeah. So just an, a, a catastrophic unraveling. Oh, absolutely. That they're absolutely not, so. That's 1980. They make one more stab at it. They decide to launch a beer that had been sold in the 1890s called yeah. Erlanger. Okay. You know, that's not going to go anywhere, right? Yeah. yeah. It's just not going to go any- anyway. So in 1981, there's a strike in Milwaukee uh, that starts in June. Heilman, they've, by this time, the company is for sale. They, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking to anybody. They try RJ Reynolds, hoping that maybe, you know, the Philip Morris thing will sure. save them too. But sure. RJ Reynolds doesn't want anything to do yeah, with it. Yeah. So, you know, um, in 1981, Heilman, which was headquartered in Wisconsin as well, lacrosse? Yes, lacrosse. That yes. sounds right. Um, uh, yeah, Heilman was one of those companies that had, that, came into being after prohibition and they'd managed to stay alive and they got through the 50s and 60s by buying breweries that didn't survive. So mm-hmm. they have cobbled together a pretty substantial presence. They're like maybe the sixth or seventh brewery in the US, you know, something like that. Uh, they make an offer. Paps makes a counter offer as if Paps could, you know, what a dumb yeah, idea. Yeah, where does Paps have? Uh, Paps doesn't have any money. They're barely uh, that's surviving. Right. Pap, I, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, in September, the strike was over, but the Milwaukee plant closed for good. Mm. And that was the day that people in Milwaukee realized this is... Um... Anyway, the Justice Department did not allow Heilman to f- seal the deal because it had antitrust questions. Mm-hmm. But in, in um, 1982... Uh, Stroh finally ended up with Schlitz. What you know? What what was left? Little of it. infinite. What's left of it? Yeah. Wow. But it, I, really, from you know, their their peak is in 1973, and then five years later, they're just. If you want to know how to destroy a company, just do everything they did. Yeah, my God, the template, yeah, just, the blueprint is right there. It, it really is. It's um, Bob Eline. If you read the profiles of him over the years, he's always, you know, he's not really a hands-on guy. You got to read between the lines, but he, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, there nobody else in the family wanted it, right? His two sons had already gone off into ranching. They were going to make their money in ranching. They wanted nothing to do with the brewery. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what a sad end to. Uh, I mean, at that yeah. point, like again, as you mentioned in 1962. Uh, even come out of the fifties where, you know, beer was in, in trouble or it was a, it was a sort of languishing marketplace and whatever. Um, Schlitz at that time, halfway through the century is still, uh, an American institution. I mean, this is, this is number one is Anheuser-Busch. Number two is Schlitz. Um, Mm -hmm. it builds with paps to some extent builds Milwaukee, right? It's a, and, and Miller, of course, you know, these are, this is one of the iconic heritage, breweries mm-hmm. and what you realize is that even for an institution like that with pillars you know deep into the community and deep into the industry it actually 
is a lot more precarious than you might think because Bob Eline and the various flunkies who are installed at higher, higher reaches of the company. And of course the, the 460 Elines who wanted nothing but, uh, dividends, um, they were able to make kind of short work of what was, you know, a, a, a behemoth for its time. It didn't take yes. long. <laughs> no, it, no, it didn't. It did not take long. And again, it's hard to know how it would have played out had Philip Morris not bought Miller because the kind of big elephant in the room for all of this is it's hard to describe just how um, disruptive mm-hmm. that acquisition was because Philip Morris just dumped so much money into the industry that it just simply altered the equations for advertising, wow. for sales promotions, for discounts. You know, it just, um, and and they did that in the space of just a few years. So you can turn a brewery around in a few years and yeah. you can destroy a brewery. But I, I think one of the biggest issues with Schlitz was they're the ones who had who coined who you had the advertising slogan that the, Schlitz was the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Right, and from 1962 on, there was just no one in the company who gave a damn about the beer wow. at all. You know, that was the last thing on their minds. Yeah. Eline's Eline had this philosophy, which, according to some reports, he'd acquired from the underlings around him that. What you could make the greatest beer in the world, you could make the best tasting beer in the world, but if you're not making any money, what's the point? Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. was you know. So if the beer is shitty, we don't care. Nobody. He's a, he believed firmly that no one was ever going to notice. You have super plants making bajillions of gallons of beer. Nobody's going to notice what it tastes right. like. You make well, it up. What's the the line in the industry? Is you make it up on volume, right? Well, you can't make it up yes, on volume yeah. if people stop buying it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, yeah, it, it it really is a classic. Well, I hope there aren't more examples like this around. Maybe yeah. there are, but geez. Well, man. that's a good question. Wow. It, 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 you know, you you wrote. I think the definitive history of the American brewing industry and ambitious brew. Uh, you've looked at other industries. You know, you covered the American the rise of I guess, commodity beef, uh, you know, you've mm-hmm. looked at a bunch of different industries and you've also lived a lot of this, you know, these experiences you've gone through these decades. You Is this, I mean, one of the great downfalls of sort of like corporate malfeasance or neglect? I mean, what, what are the others? What yeah. are the comps, Maureen? I, I can't think of it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just I really cannot think of one. Th- wow. This was so maybe G maybe latter days maybe G- a GE for example, which loses maybe. its way in in the end of Jack Welch's years and, yeah. and whatever, and, and finally is is for is a company for shareholders and not for light bulbs anymore. You know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, well, that, maybe, yeah. No. Maybe. No. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but certainly, mean, there's not. Yeah. 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 Wow. All right, I want to I want to go back a little bit because uh, I do think that like it's worth discussing. You know, you, you've you, we we discussed sort of the way over time Eline fiddles with the liquid in a way that I, it sounds like. Did you get the sense when you were reporting on this and when you were doing the research and reading about you know reading the primary source and whatever? Did he understand at all what he was doing as he was taking? you know, Jenga pieces out from the tower? Like, did he understand that he was weakening, you know, the quote-unquote platform, the liquid? Uh, or was it it was it pure ignorance? I, I think... I think Close to pure I think ignorance. it was a combination of um, probably ego, mm. probably um, being the fifth 
generation, I guess, to mm-hmm. run the company and mm-hmm. just taking a lot of stuff. For, again, this guy was off on vacation or off playing polo a lot. Wow. You know what I mean? He he was kind of a jet setter. Jet setter. Yeah, like a, almost a dandy, it sounds like a little bit. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, um, you know, he, he got the job because he was the last E-line. <laughs> Who would, you know? who would take it, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, he was the last one who had been at the company that long. He started wow. in whatever, what did I say, 30, 1935, yeah, 1936, yeah. something. I mean, you know, he'd spent his whole career there. And I think, well, he definitely never got the memo that the beer is the heart of the business. Yeah, which, yeah. Which, again, the in Pabst, well, we'll just forget them because by this time, Pabst has no connection at all to the family. Right, but Anheuser-Busch... Right. No matter what they did, you just didn't – the beer came first, mm-hmm. and everything else was calculated after that, right? If you're not going to protect the beer, then – so if you if you don't give a shit about the beer, mm. maybe <laughs> you're going to pay what are you for selling? it later. Yeah, what are you selling, right, you know, at that yeah. point? Well, I think there's an irony there because, like, at, at its inception, Anheuser-Busch – the earlier generations, not August Bush the Third, who you know, compared to Bob Elon, sounds like a, a genius. Genius, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes, and he, and I, I, and he was. Uh, to be fair, yeah, I think uh, by by uh, in hindsight, you know, we may not like the guy, but right. he knew what he was doing. Right, right. But earlier generations of the Bush family, sort of. I mean, you're the historian here, so correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding was they actually didn't treat the liquid as the primary thing. Like they were, you know, they had a good enough beer and they were going out to, I'm talking about like, uh, uh, you know, 1850s or so when, when the Bush family buys in from the Anheuser family. Cause that's, that's the genesis of Anheuser Bush, right? Anheuser had a right. product. The Bush family comes along and is like, well, he's floundering, but we can make this work. They, they form a partnership. I'm, I know I'm generalizing here, but isn't that more or less how Anheuser-Busch comes into being? Yeah, yeah. actually he married. He, he married in Okay, cool, cool. All right, yeah. so yeah. whatever. The, in, in any case, uh, Eline does not treat the liquid as the most important thing. I like the, uh, what's the, the Greek like mythos, like the uh, ship of Theseus, you know, where it's like, it's like the thought experiment of like, how many things about a ship, like a seafaring vessel, can you remove before it's no longer oh. a ship, right? Like, yeah. well, you can take the mast, right? Okay. Uh, okay. Well, you can take the the prow, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. it's still a ship. Uh, well, what if you take the hull? Well, I don't know. I mean, gosh, now we're yeah. kind of getting down to it. Right, that's basically like what Elon was doing with the beer, right? Like, yeah. with Schlitz itself, yeah. it's like, okay, well, we can cut some of the barley here. Okay, well, uh, what about the hops? Yeah, we can probably subtract some of that, okay? like They were, they were yeah, go, go but, ahead. But Sorry. by the end, you know, but fast forward five years and it's like, well, hang on a second. Like this thing, when you pour it into a glass, it's flaky, it's murky. It doesn't have a head. Uh, there's actually not that many actual hops yeah. in it or actual you know, malt in it. Uh, what do we got here, fellas? Like, I'm not sure that we got a beer still. <laughs> yeah. They were using, um, they were using corn syrup Yeah, and they were using a uh, hop liquid mm. rather than pellets. I mean, they'd, they'd gotten it down to the They were cheapest. slicing, slicing, slicing. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. slicing everything they can slice. I, by the way, I, I will say, as far as I know, I mean, I don't have access to any family documents, but the Bush family, they never, they, they, their, their thing was the beer is the only thing that matters mm. and you can't mess with it, mm-hmm. you know? They maybe some of them weren't 
beer drinkers, but they grasp the concept that if you run a brewery, the most important thing is the beer. <laughs> right. Which right. doesn't, you know, it doesn't strike me as uh, too hard of a thing to learn, but so where, Bob Eline never got that memo. Yeah. And so I guess like that's a question I would love to try to explore here to the extent we're able or speculate if we're not able to make, you know, if you're not able to make a uh, a firm prognosis of it. But like, where does Eline get that notion? Where does where does Schlitz go wrong under his hand? I mean, why why would he think that? Because I think it is because of the people he was hiring, like the people who were doing, who were dealing with the diversification, for God's sake, no, right. you know, they needed, they needed a babysitter really badly. Mm-hmm. All the, the fraud, the kickbacks, the grift, the tax fraud, all of it, that was all committed by people that he was, had hired. And among the many things that I read about Schlitz was that he, Bob Eline was surrounded by people who told him that in a big company like this, the be- it's not the beer that matters. It's, you know, efficiency. It's cutting costs. Right. So that's what you need to focus on. And um, he never, he did not push back on that. He he was not a beer-centric E-line at all. And, uh, and it sounds like there weren't, there weren't many beer-centric E-lines at that point. There, there weren't. And I, I think, I think truly he created a company culture where the beer was the least important thing. Because by the time, uh, like after Satchel left and they didn't hire a new president, mm-hmm. anybody who got elevated came from basically the accounting department. Right, you know, they right. were all finance people. And like the, like the guy who's supposed to be overseeing the brewery, some guy calls him up, the brewmaster calls him up and says, buddy, we got a problem here. And yeah. he doesn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, wow. that, 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 I mean, if you're running the company... It seems to me the people you hire have to be part of your responsibility, even if you're not hiring them directly, you know? So I don't think Bob Eline, you know, I'm sorry the guy died. Um, <laughs> but, you know, rest, but in, I, rest, rest in peace, Bob Eline. But. Rest, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think, um, I don't think anybody can, uh, you know, talk themselves into saying that somehow he was a misunderstood genius right. or anything like that. Right. I, I think he was just absolutely the wrong person for the job. And they should have had a hint when Satchel came back and he left after six weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, that should have told them something. You people are Because they had put a lot of faith. They knew Satchel, you know, they he, they had a lot of faith in him. Yep, and yep. Bye-bye, baby. What about – I want to sort of throw a theory at you here. I mean because we talked about some of the broader shifts that are happening in the, you know, backdrop – in the background in American culture, in the American economy, in the global economy. Um, I want to look at maybe – you know, you mentioned that Bob Eline instilled a culture at Schlitz or appeared to basically, you know, based on the consequences of what happens under his reign of, you know, cost cutting, of deprioritizing the actual product in favor of the dividends it can spit off quarter over quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that there's at least some parallels there with what's going on in American culture vis-a-vis like professionalization and higher education, 
you know, filtering into the marketplace, MBAs going out into the world and looking at plants that are, you know, have produced a real product for the last 50 or 100 years or whatever the case may be and saying, hey, we can do it better. And maybe they can in in certain, you know, capacities, right? They can clean up the balance sheets. They can uh, find more effective ways to service debt or to, you know, access capital, right? These are things, there's there's utility that, um, you know, a stronger, more financialized core of a business can deliver to, you know, maybe a, a, a real plant that makes a real thing, right? But But to give that like, you know, sort of professional class that's coming out of, you know, the university systems, Mm -hmm. the reins over the product itself seems to me to be, you know, at least in Schlitz's case, seems to partially be that recipe for failure. I mean, the reason I bring this up is because Anheuser-Busch and August Bush III sort of famously or infamously took a while to sort of warm up to bringing the MBAs, bringing the business guys into, you know, the boardroom decisions, right? I mean, like August Bush III was, he was, you know, raised in the brewery. He he had an incredible mind for the business, but was never, or at least for a long time, was not that keen on hiring you know, business first people instead of brewery first people or beer first people. And in other words, do you see where I'm going with that? Like there seems to be a broader shift with like the pipeline of like talent that is making it into the upper echelons of the beer industry around this time. And Schlitz maybe is on the vanguard of uh, deferring too much to uh, higher educated you know, sort of decision makers at the expense of people with hands-on experience. Does yes. that does that and like I, resonate for you? T- tell me. Yes. Later. Yeah, it, it, and that that actually did begin in the 1960s. Uh, Bob Eline hmm. did bring in a bunch of young men, <laughs> naturally of young course. men, MBAs, young MBAs, and they were the guys running around making half of these decisions. Um, Anheuser Busch always had experts on hand and they always listen. Like when Bob Weinberg spoke, the, mm-hmm. the very famous uh, beer analyst who I think is now dead. I'm sure he is. Cause, but he, for years, I mean, they, they respected him. They respected people with talent and ideas, but anybody, everything I've ever read about Anheuser-Busch indicates that no matter what happened, no matter what happened, you have to protect the beer first. In the 1970s, when the price of barley tripled in the space of about nine months, right. they they were not going to do anything to change the beer because the you know they the, no matter what happened, the beer was what mattered. And I I think I'm pretty sure that August Bush the third brought in some of his own experts, but he never allowed himself to fall into their mindset. And it's clear that Bob Eline was really wowed by the MBAs. You know, let's diversify. Let's, you know, we can cut 50 bajillion dollars if we just, you know, reduce the hops by whatever. Right. They say, hey, you're spending a lot. Yeah, right, right. You're spending a lot of money on barley. What if you just didn't, Bob? And you're like, well, oh gosh, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, well, August Bush would have a different answer to that question. So, uh, you know, I, yeah, (laughs) yeah, probably, probably. He, um, I, I, I just think this is a case where, like, let's just take the, the legal difficulties. Schlitz was in legal difficulties for 20 years straight. Yeah. 
And it was always because no one is really minding the people who are running around doing this. And apparently Bob Eline, when he did know, he's like, well, you know, that's, that's the just beer how business. the business yeah. works. <laughs> that's the beer business. So he seemed to have, um, I don't think he was a great businessman is what I think. His last name was Eline, but, you know, and there was never any doubt he was going to get the job. But yeah, they'd have been better off with a different person. Let Clearly. me put it that way. They might have made it. Clearly. A lot of brewing uh, industry sort of leaders at that time are family members of the breweries that they're operating, right? The Coors family, the Stroh family, the um, the, yes. the we just talked about the Bush family, right? Like, yes. Where did the Elines go so wrong? Because certainly, it sounds like based on everything we've discussed over the course of this episode, the four hundred and sixty Elines are an enormous impediment to Schlitz maybe yes. punching its way out of a paper bag, much That's less, right. you know, That's reclaiming right. its former glory. Why was this family so much of an albatross when brewing as an industry at that time was very much a family industry? Boy, that's a good question. Um, there are too many of them, first the, of all. Well, there were, the, the thing is, like in the Bush family, a lot of people unloaded their shares. Right. You know, they were not dependent on them. But, mm. but this, you know, the, this was a big, it was a German family, right? There were four brothers, and they probably had God only knows how many kids, and then they had God only knows how many kids, and they all just got used to living off the brewery, yeah. right? I mean, this is the, the and and they're wealthy, they're very wealthy people, and they just they're not they want the you know the ship. Let's you know let, let's keep it going. Now, right. I will say I'm a little surprised that the family let the brewery sleep through the 50s. Mm. I, 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 and I think it's because the family, well, Saul, again, Saul Abrams was in his 90s. He'd been there for 70 years. Unbelievable. And if they'd had any brains at all, starting in about 1948, they would have just done an overhaul and, you know, introduced kind of modern management mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But they just, yeah, the family... The family just remained an impediment. Wow. Like the, the Bush family only owned 25% of the company. Sort of famously, when AB InBev happens in 2008, people in St. Louis are astonished at how little the Bush family actually owns of the company. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They, they, they had, you know, when the company went public in, I think, 1933, yeah, the, the Bush family never had, you know, control of the company. Right. And Nothing the, like the eighty percent that the Elons did. That's right. Yeah. Now, they just, uh, you know, if there was a mistake, and I don't know, maybe, I guess people just kept passing their shares along, and wow, wouldn't you know? So yeah, but all the other stuff. I mean, the the inflation and the interest rates of the early seventies. I, I remember that so clearly, and it was hard for every company, every company in this country struggle and mm -hmm. many went out of business because it, it was just tough and it was not a good time to have management missing in action management missing will. in action management taking out enormous amount of debt on the head of a company with a shaky foundation yeah. <laughs> management fiddling with a product from the boardroom rather than from the brew house floor yes. yeah yeah one thing after the other and and you know it's sort of it all coalesces Maureen we've gone the distance here I want to I want to wrap with sort of a you know, we mentioned it, and we and we discussed uh, in some 
you know, detail the infamous, you know, the disastrous drink Schlitz or I'll kill you ad campaign. It's Leo Burnett, I think, is the ad agency that puts it together. Yes, it was 1976, 77. So coming off what you've marked as basically the death knell yes. for Schlitz in 1976, yeah. they follow it up with this catastrophic ad campaign. The campaign, it seems to me, though it was a mess and it, and it, and it failed and it was like clearly, you know, not uh, uh, good for the brand. It seems to me that the campaign may have been unfairly blamed for Schlitz's down because, you know, to the rank and file consumer, they don't know anything about the machinations that are going on in the company. They don't know that Bob Elon dating back to 1962 is making one bad decision after the other, after the other. They don't know about the grand, uh, the grand jury indictments or the sec, you know, uh, fines or whatever. They see this ad campaign. It sucks. It's bad, you know, it really, you know, it, it is, it fails. And they say, and then Schlitz goes <laughs> goes out of business, whatever, five years later, uh, or, or is looking for a buyer five years later and the shares are in the toilet and whatever. And they say, well, they, you know, there you go. I mean, one thing led to another, right? The ad campaign and, and, and the company nah. fails. It seems to me that, uh, you know, drink Schlitz or I kill, I'll kill you uh, needs a redemption of history here, <laughs> needs a little bit it, 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 less blame. The thing is that... <laughs> It was so, that ad campaign, I don't remember now, I, I, I don't have, so I don't want to over-promise here, but um, it was so bad, it, it only lasted a matter of weeks. I think it was 10 weeks. It. I think they pulled it in 10 it's, weeks. Okay. Yeah, yeah. About 10 weeks. And then, so then they just went back to the Gusto campaigns. Yeah. But, so they spent a lot of money on, here was another thing they blew a bunch of money yeah, on yeah. because nobody in marketing, when people in marketing finally did see the ad campaign, they were like, yeah. Are you kidding me? We're actually going to do this? We're <laughs> going to do this? But it was too late. The horse had left the barn. They spent the money on yeah, it. Yeah, was- no, it was, no, no, it yeah. was already on the air, man. <laughs> no, you know, it was just too late. But you can, but you cannot, I mean, if anything, the drink Schlitzer, I'll kill you was an act of desperation, mm. right? When people change ad agencies, when companies change ad agencies, to me, that's always a sign something's going wrong. Right. And and you're going to try to pull yourself out with another ad campaign. And yeah, this, the ad campaign was not to blame. The toast had already been burned by then. Yeah, you know? well put. They said, drink Schlitz or I'll kill you. But I mean, rea- really, Schlitz was killed at that point. And there was, you yes. know, the writing oh, was yeah. on the wall. Maureen, thank you as always for joining us here on Tap Lines. Thank you for taking us through the fall. I mean, we didn't talk about the rise, but everyone knows kind of how Schlitz got there. You know, a dynastic uh, brewer that yeah. had been around, survived prohibition. I mean, there was there was reason that it was great, and then its undoing was was swift and unceremonious. Thank you for yes. for bringing us along for the ride, Maureen. Uh, third time on tap lines. Uh, you are. How's the book going? I want to. Well, I'll be putting this in the intro, but of course, tell us. Tell us where you're at with the book. Okay. Yeah. I. Uh, I <laughs> oh no. I have been working on. I, no, I have been. Wor- I. I. I swear to God, this book is going to happen. I, I am writing another book. This one. It focuses on the August Shell Brewing Company, which is in New Ulm, Minnesota. And if you haven't heard of it, no problem. It is the second oldest brewery in the U.S. It was founded in eight. 1860, not 1960, wow. 1860. And um, one day my brain said, 
how did they survive? How, how did little brewer, you know, how, how, how do you do that? And I just got into, so I'm writing a book about that. It, I took a, an extended detour away because I'm revising another book that doesn't have anything to do with beer. And I got way bogged down in that. But the, the other beer book is coming along fine. And uh, August Shelbury survives and to some extent thrives at the same time that Schlitz is falling apart, right? Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. well they I'll tell you, I, I can tell you this much. The Marty family in the early seventies, they didn't know if they were gonna survive because fuel costs. Of all the you know, factors I mean we I cannot discussed. you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. A little company like that, man, they were they took to growing hyponic hydroponic tomatoes in a greenhouse wow. to try to supplement, you know, I mean, they struggled then. It, it was tough for everyone. That's not a diversification yeah. out of flights of fancy, like a glass factory in Turkey. That's a diversification no. out of, yeah. holy smokes, we got to find something to sell for cash because. Yeah. But they but they survived, yeah. you know, they're still there. They're still brewing out of a brew a structure that was built in 1861. Wow. Well, they, Crazy. Didn't, they didn't have Bob Eline uh, at the helm. No, 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 no. Lucky them. Uh, Maureen, Lucky them. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and and we hope to have you again for your, you know, your fourth appearance soon enough. But thank you uh, for being here for your third. We'll have to think of a, another topic. Are uh, we running out of topics? I don't think so. Probably Ambitious not. Brew, your, your seminal tome on the beer industry is, what, 250 pages? There's plenty in there that we can, uh, we can draw yeah, from. We'll be back soon enough. But for now, it's adieu. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Maureen. Okay. Thanks, Dave. All right. See ya. Thank you, everybody. Everybody for listening. Bye. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.